0: Welcome back to Accelerate Defense, a podcast from Acme General Corp. I'm Ken Harbaugh, principal at Acme and host of this month's episode. On Accelerate Defense, we hear from political figures, military professionals, and other thought leaders about how innovation shapes our national security landscape. My guest today is Logan Jones, president of Spark Cognition Government Systems, the first full-spectrum artificial intelligence company focused entirely on national defense. Logan, welcome to Accelerate Defense. Hey, Ken, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. So the thing that sets SGS apart, and it's right there on your masthead, is that sole focus on the public sector. And I want you to share your company's thinking behind that strategy, because where I sit, everything is about dual use. It's a mantra for the companies I work with. And and not in a bad way. It's a diversified bet on a bigger market. But you have been extremely successful swimming against that
1: current. Why? Well, I, I would back up, Ken, actually, to you know, some of the heritage and history, starting from when Spark Cognition, our parent company, was founded, you know, eight or nine years ago. You know, my connection to the company was I had led the venture fund at Boeing called Horizon X. Spark Cognition was our third investment. And we were really interested in understanding how a company like Boeing, who operates at massive scale, could tap into this emerging ecosystem of players who are driving technology. Artificial intelligence machine learning was one of those classes of technologies that we were interested in. You can imagine, and you've probably done it yourself, but we did a bit of an evaluation in the market. And what we saw is roughly a couple categories of companies. And this gets right at the heart of your do use question. Number one is uh, classic companies who claim to be doing machine learning, but they just were using it as a way to fundraise. So they put that one to the side. The second class was a group of companies you know, really embracing the power of ML for applications and different solutions, yet it was in a domain or an industry that we as an A&D company couldn't understand, right? It operated for media or consumers and it wasn't industrial in nature. Then we did find a class of companies really driving AI and ML into industrial applications. So at scale, security at mind, auditability at the heart of it, and solving some really complex, hard problems. But fast forward, so we make the investment, uh, Spark Cognition was also very, very focused on driving applications within DOD and national security. But it was just like you mentioned, it was through this lens of dual use. We deliver and deploy in commercial markets and we port it over into, in this case, military application sets. The problem comes down to a couple categories which led to our focus, you know, our corporate strategy. Number 1 is infrastructure matters. So your ability to build a company to house appropriate data sets relevant to the government, to work in partnership and collaboration with the government, things like timekeeping, accounting, it matters. If you want true and full access to this customer community to understand and appreciate the mission, you have to build the company that way. Number 2 is really around the people. So you know, getting a group of operators who understand and have passion for the mission, who can sit arm-in-arm, hand-in-hand with these customers and drive deployments, customized deployments, that comes with an exclusive focus on national security and defense. And then finally, you know, the last one is dual-use, the underlying core of technology. Sure, it's applicable in all markets, but how it's applied, that last mile, truly matters. And I think you start to dilute your focus and effectiveness if you're trying to serve both markets at the same time. So that's what led us to sole focus on defense and national security as our corporate strategy.
0: You brought up staffing, which has come up again and again in our conversations with industry leaders and experts in this field. We had a a fantastic conversation with Chris Lynch, which defied a lot of my and others' preconceptions about the difficulty of drawing talent to this ecosystem. What has your experience been drawing the best and brightest to a company that works exclusively with defense? The conventional wisdom is that techies keep this stuff at arm's length. We had the drama at Google and other big companies, uh, the the insurrections against government
1: contracts. What have you seen? Yeah, and and Ken, I listened to the interview with Chris and it was phenomenal. And people should go listen to it because a lot of what Chris talks about is what I believe to be true as well. Look, speaking for my own history, which I think is applicable here, I, from a very early age, was interested in military. I never served, but this I feel like is a way to serve without serving overseas in a way. So what do I mean? When I grew up, my grandfather was a master sergeant. He was a, a maintenance chief for the P 17s in World War II. And, you know, we used to go to air shows. You know, we talk about a lot and I'd always talk about, oh, pilots, you know, oh, grandpa it was so cool. You're a pilot. He'd say, no, i I wasn't a pilot, my eyesight was terrible, but I had an important job. I mean, don't minimize it. I kept the thing flying. And the aircraft that he was responsible for was called Battle Wagon. And, you know, go on bond drives. But I have his, a photo album. I have you know, certificates of when he graduated maintenance tech school. It was what led me to Boeing when I, I worked at Boeing. And this passion for the mission and purpose to serve something greater than yourself I think it spans much farther than people give it credit for. Over the past 15 or 20 years, I do think, Ken, you're right, a lot of people have moved into commercial markets and been focused on on different applications. But over the last year, especially accelerating since Russia invaded Ukraine, I think people have come to realize that the world may not be as safe as everybody thought it was, that there's bad actors out there. And so from a passion and mission standpoint, what I've seen is an uptick in people who just want to serve, be a participant and a driver in both technology, innovation, and application at the same time while serving a cause much greater than themselves, right? It's the newspaper test. Can you pick up the newspaper and see something that you've worked on, an impact that you've had in the world beyond some narrow application? So that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing it in Spark Cognition government systems, but I'm also seeing it in new entrants within the space, new emerging startups who are focused on DOD.
0: I definitely wanna wanna talk about that, especially you're raising the issue of Ukraine. But as a aviation slash history geek, I just looked up the battle wagon, yeah. the aircraft your your grandfather worked on. And man, it's got a story I can't count the number of, of mission stickers on the nose. I'm going to read up about that plane. My grandfather was a B-17 pilot in uh, in the Pacific, and that's a, a hell of a story in its own right. He came back filled with shrapnel from a bombing run over New Ireland. But thanks for giving me some reading. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Well, it's also, it's just like your history, Ken. It's maybe something too that I aspire to and that how many bombing runs, how many missions did that generation perform, and what is it that we can do to perform a similar mission set? You know, different, obviously, in these days. But Battle Wagon is a very special, <laughs> a very special uh, asset of my family, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of those contributions that
0: Spark Cognition is contributing enormously to is uh, joint readiness command and control. I read the White Paper, and I'm wondering if... I imagine that was conceived and written before the Russia invasion, but the lessons from that must be enormously applicable (laughs) in a negative sense, given the total breakdown during the initial phase of the invasion. Uh, How are you incorporating immediate current events and the geopolitical landscape into your thinking and your, your input on white papers like that?
1: Yeah, thanks for bringing it up, Ken. So Joint Readiness Command and Control, as we call JRC2. A colleague of mine, David Mazar, and I wrote that right at the outset of creating the company. And the idea is that there's a significant amount of focus in DoD, and rightly so, around this sensor-to-shooter integration and being able to seamlessly connect at the day of the battle. But what we saw was it left a lot on the table in terms of the many, many weeks and months to prepare for a battle. And integrating the preparation, so you know the logistics, the storing, the supply chain into how you actually provide mission effect is something that DOD has an opportunity to capture and grasp. What we saw and are seeing in terms of Russia-Ukraine is that it comes down to logistics. You know, the boring, sleepy old topic of logistics matters in 2022. And your ability to prepare and plan for a fight and then constantly update that in near real time based on real-world conditions truly matters in how you can carry out an operation. And so it's just as relevant as it was nearly two years ago when we wrote it. What has changed though, is activities within the department around data readiness. So what's made this as a concept it makes a lot of sense, what makes it difficult to apply is the data exists in silos. It exists in both commercial environments and DOD-owned environments. And that data integration issue has been one of the challenges or barriers to adoption.
0: I think it was uh, General Omar Bradley who said Amateurs talk strategy. Professionals talk logistics. That's it, does, it <laughs> was. Let's talk about the intersection of AI and logistics. Your, your promo video has this great quote, AI can peer through an otherwise opaque future and help us make out the contours of what lies ahead. I think most of us appreciate the ability of AI to accelerate decision-making and amplified perception greater range of action those are phrases i've taken from spark cognition but talk about its forecasting abilities predictive maintenance that kind of thing that's a little less intuitive than than helping the immediate decision making ability of the warfighter
1: yeah it is uh, you know those categories of what ai is used for can i think really matters so we always break it down into ai can be used as a force multiplier It can be used to improve asset intelligence, and it can be used as a tool to help optimize decision-making. The power comes in when it's, you know, all three effectively in one. You know, one of the things that we're quick to talk about in terms of artificial intelligence and the solutions that it's a part of is that it's all about the outcome. These users don't necessarily care that it's AI-enabled workflows or that there's a, a robust data strategy that you know underpins it. What they care about is that it's helping them make better decisions or do their job in a more effective or efficient way. So in terms of predictions, there's a number of expert systems out there that are making predictions around supply and logistics every day. Where we think AI and ML has a right to play is the fact that these data sets are so large with so many variables, you know, so many factors that play into future potential outcomes that it's moving beyond what expert systems are able to achieve on their own merits. This is one of the lessons that we've learned in our commercial heritage is that applications in you know, fraud detection and banking, for example, or approving loans or insurance, all of those lessons in terms of optimizing a decision outcome, are relevant in terms of logistics and supply chain. And that's what we're applying to improve predictions within this marketplace. Now, what makes it very difficult is, a lot of the supply data that we've seen through different government organizations and, and agencies is really spotty, it's tough. You get maybe one widget ordered one time or maybe infrequently at best, and it's really difficult to make a prediction based on that. So what we're the way that we're thinking about and applying decision making is not just leveraging that single data set around, here's my historical demand, <laughs> now forecast what the future could look like, but it's around incorporating the context that drives that demand signal. So what does that mean? It means where the assets are being used. It means, you know, information and context around the operators themselves. You know, is a pilot a new pilot? Is the pilot an experienced pilot? What kind of forces are acting upon the machine itself? And on and on and on. That's how you improve the robustness of prediction. And that's where AI and ML really stands ahead of the field.
0: You've got a couple other categories on your solutions page that I was trying to figure out, and they're they're really interesting to me. I mean, there's the typical enabling of operational insights and situational awareness. I think we all get that. But explain, capture, retain, and operationalize tribal knowledge. That's yeah. pretty novel. And upskill and augment team members through prescriptive recommendations. What are you doing there?
1: Yeah, I'm happy to. T- I actually had goes back to my grandpa in a way, right? You know, when I'd listened to his stories about maintaining an aircraft, you know, he was experienced. He was a crew chief. So he ran a number of maintainers. What does that mean? He he would have been what's called level nine. And at a level nine, when you have that level of experience, the maintenance manual, the fault isolation manual, whatever it might be, may recommend based on these criteria, here's what the problem is with an aircraft. But- People like my grandpa, and there's many more nine levels out there, they'd say, you know what, I got this, the hairs on the back of my neck stand up and I get, you know, I feel it in my bones that it's not that, it's this problem over here. And the way that they troubleshoot based on symptoms and actually find the root cause is very unique. And it takes many, many years of not just training, but doing that tribal knowledge is locked up in this case in maintenance logs so when they go in and they diagnose a problem they run through a course of action they write it up and then there's you know a fix and then you the aircraft lives and you can see how the fix did it work or did it not so what we do in this case is we use a class of ai called natural language processing That can cut through the idiosyncrasies of how a maintainer describes a certain event. You know, one may call a symptom a vibration, another a shudder, another may describe it as, you know, some really loud noise. You know, it may all be the same thing. But natural language processing, you know, has a unique ability to cut through those nuances of human described events. And then it starts to correlate the way that those symptoms were described. And goes back and ties it to previous examples, the fault isolation manual. How do you diagnose it? The job guide. How do you actually apply the fix? And then the tech pubs. You know how, what's it look like in context of the broader system or environment? And it prescribes a course of action aligned with policy that the Air Force, in this case, has. So our solution is what's called Digital Maintenance Advisor, and it uses AI to help diagnose, troubleshoot, and then apply a solution to the aircraft maintenance event. That's awesome.
0: Logan, you were just nominated by FedScoop to the best bosses in federal IT. And I want to talk a little bit about leadership in this domain. I mean, we've touched on the ways you attract talent, but AI poses its own set of ethical Challenges, as does any emerging tech, but this one has the potential to disrupt not just an industry, but civilization. I'll leave it there for your initial reaction, but
1: then I want to dive deep in a couple areas. Sure. Thanks, Ken. And and first off, the nomination to an award like that is more a reflection of the team that we have in Spark Cognition than it is about me. The only one who would disagree with that is probably my mother. But it really is about the team that's in Spark Cognition. Now, in terms of what we do and the ethical context around it, one is it matters. You know, we we are a company that takes these conversations and incorporates it in the decision-making process. We have many engagements with our board around ethical use of AI. It's a subject that, you know, we're not going to hand wave away or, you know, move around without thinking about it, without forethought. At the same time, I tend to be of the mind of really two ways to look at it. One is, if you look at all of the problems within this market set, there's a significant portion of problems that are pretty mundane in nature where ethics does not even come into the calculus. As an example, upskilling a maintainer by unlocking the insights that are locked up in tribal knowledge, There's not many ethical tripwires in that. This is not a smart munition. This is literally maintenance logs and maintenance manuals and helping somebody find information in a more appropriate way. How many different boring or mundane application sets exist like that across the department? I mean, it's a huge fraction. If they would focus, if we would focus as an industry on solving those, there's so much progress to be had where, Ethics doesn't, you know, it's not moving into that very dangerous area or gray area. Now, the second category are the application sets where it does become a very real debate. And what I believe is that we as a nation, we as an industry should be first to solve those problems with the ethical framework and the value system that we have. I've heard it on this podcast before, Ken. You know, we have a framework as Western society, we need to be out there driving and innovating. Otherwise, the vacuum will be filled by our adversaries. And so the way I look at it is we need to provide the leadership and first mover position in this marketplace so that those decisions aren't made for us in a way.
0: Yeah, I I think we're moving beyond a a loose framework. We don't have the policy we need yet. But as part of the prep for this, read the National Security Commission on AI's final report, which has this statement of principle, which I think is is really powerfully articulated, it, it says the American way of AI must reflect American values, including having the rule of law at its core. That's a profound statement about an emerging tech, that it needs to be tied to American values. I'm sure you're familiar with that report.
1: I'm very familiar with it. The chairman of my board is Secretary Bob Work, who was vice chair of that commission. And that values-based decision-making does flow into everything that we do. So one of the other solution sets that we're working on is around domain awareness, driving into improving decision-making. And when you have a solution that is perceiving the threat environment and then teeing up decisions for a human operator to make, ethics and values goes into everything that we're doing. And I would also say, Ken, that one thing I'm really proud of about this country and about this community is that it's not left just to companies like SGS or me as the president of the company to drive this. These are conversations that we have with customers on a frequent basis about keeping it at the forefront of how this is deployed in application sets. And I'm glad you, you read the report. I would recommend anybody anybody truly read the report. You know, I think it's 700 some odd pages. There is an executive summary out there.
0: That's what I read.
1: (laughs) You read that, okay. Well, it's outstanding. And it details a lot of the issues that we have around, you know, the talent base and, and government being able to scope out and acquire solutions enabled by AI. You know, it talks about STEM education, talks about our acquisition systems. It talks about, you know, how we put, you know, pools of funding in place for early stage kind of pilot programs, and it talks about ethics. So I would recommend everybody read it. It's an outstanding report. It is. You mentioned Bob Work, the chair of your board. He said this
0: about you. Logan understands that this is a values competition. He really understands that everything starts at the ground floor, that the technologists who are developing AI applications have to fully embrace the idea of responsible
1: AI. We do. You can't just have a group of people who are working in national security and defense treated as, I guess, benignly as a social media app in a way. That may not be a popular statement, but the way that we are thinking about this and the gravity that we apply to the decision-making process matches the gravity of the mission of our customers. And this isn't, again, this is not just SGS. What I've observed over the many years I've been working in this industry is that no companies differentiating themselves on an issue like ethics <laughs> and responsibility is that this is a unifying theme across American industry, across uh, this ecosystem, and it's working its way into the applications that we're deploying collectively into DoD. So it, Again, we're on the right track as an industry.
0: Bob Work also talked about your focus on the relationship with the warfighter and the yeah. criticality of building up that warfighter trust. We had a great conversation with uh, Captain Mike Brasseur from Task Force 59, and I, I wanted to get your perspective on the role of software. In enabling an initiative like that. I mean, all of the the glitz is around the kit, right? The hardware, the the robots, the the drones. But none of it works without
1: code. Talk about that. Yeah, well, Ken, it's one of those. You know, i face faced this. I think many of us have faced this is how do you how do you compel? You know, what's the attractiveness around? the enabler, which is software, intangible, oftentimes behind the scenes, when everybody can see and touch and feel the hardware itself. It's a a difficult thing to do. I think the Commodore has done a very good job of, yes, showcasing hardware and how it's being adopted into the mission set. At the same time, working in parallel of applying and investing in the building blocks of software that actually makes the hardware even more effective. So it's this virtuous cycle. I think Task Force 5.9 has done a really good job of that. You know, the way that we're thinking about this is we also invested in a experimentation facility. We call it HyperWorks. It's just north of Austin, Texas. We know that operators within this segment must be able to see touch and feel not just the software but the entire solution so we built out a 50 acre proving ground where we show how ai in the real world comes to life how it operates and integrates with hardware itself we believe in a future that is much brighter when you remain focused on software and you know kind of the other side of that coin is hardware agnostic you work well within the ecosystem of providers. So we have partners that we work with uh, through experimentation at HyperWorks, companies like Raytheon, Boeing, and others, frankly, around how AI can enable that to come to life. And Ken, you said it, it comes down to building the relationship, advancing the trust, and that trust is actually enabled by, by showing how it comes to life in the real world. You mentioned Raytheon and
0: Boeing. Do you have any words of wisdom for the non-traditionals, the upstarts, the disruptors, trying to figure out a way to contribute within this ecosystem? You had a quote as SGS was emerging from COVID about you know government sticking with incumbents and the challenges for non-traditional entrance. Uh, what's what's your prediction for the next? Few years and what can non-traditionals do to grease the skids?
1: Yeah, Ken, it's a it's a great question. I mean, when I was in a traditional, uh, if you will, my job for the last four years of it was to make, in this case, it was Boeing, to help Boeing bridge to this emerging ecosystem of of new entrants, and you know leverage its resources to you know, help those companies, but also uh, you know, effectively help its customer base tap into it in a natural way. What I've observed and I guess my advice would be, it comes down to my belief system in a way about this marketplace, about the topic of defense and national security. I believe that this has to be an ecosystem. You know, This is not gonna be a walled garden, totally vertically integrated solution that wins the day. That helps to move the needle for national security. I think that our customers and our cause is promoted best by working well within the ecosystem of providers. So, what does that mean for emerging companies? I believe that you should look at your go to market in different ways. (laughs) Two of those ways is build direct, trusting relationships within the customers that you want to serve. You have to do that. You have to get to know the user community so that you have a ground level understanding of the problems that they aim to solve. Number two is also work with the OEMs, the primes, and the SIs as a way to accelerate your ability to help the end customer solve a problem. If you have an open and clear mind about it and know that it will take time, I think it pays dividends not just for your company, but it actually helps customers leverage the capabilities coming out of this community in a much more effective way than just trying to you know, break down the acquisition system and, and disrupt, if you will. Does that make sense, Ken? It does. It does. I want to ask you to look out, let's say,
0: 10 years and if this ecosystem matures the way you hope it does what are your brightest expectations and i guess i have to also ask then what are your biggest fears what what should we be guarding against and and feel free to factor in the ethical implications to that sure. answer as well
1: well let's actually let's start on the downside the downside is status quo that we don't actually change that very exciting and I think well-positioned initiatives like CDAO that's really on great footing at this point don't take hold. I don't think we as a country and we as a group of allies can afford current state applying into perpetuity or you know, maybe put another way, taking what worked in the Cold War and applying it to a future scenario. I don't think it works. What I think success looks like, Ken, and this is... I. Wake up every day focus on this. this. This is invigorating for many of us in industry, is to think that the future will be brightened by a number of new entrants, a variety of emerging companies driving real innovation into the space. I'll give you just one example to kind of bring it to life a little bit. And I I have to caveat this. I'm a big fan of Christensen's, you know, kind of the innovator's dilemma or disruption theory. And you know, there's a segment out there around maintenance. Again, I'll pick a mundane example that's that is <laughs> pretty easy to grasp. Uh, if you look at a GAO report from August of 2020, this one I think it was, it starts to detail some of the problems within this community. They've completed 38 of 51, so that's about 75 percent of maintenance periods late for aircraft carriers and submarines, 75%. That's a combined total of 7,424 days of maintenance late in that period, if you add it at all. The four shipyards completed maintenance periods an average of 113 days late for aircraft carriers. Ken, is that acceptable? So why, if we dug into why this is, one is yes, it's an extremely complex problem, I got it. But it's also a reflection of the status quo not working. You know, the maintenance and repair business is a lucrative business. The incentives built into long-term contracting actually disincentivizes change. So again, what do I take as a bright future? I take a bright future as DoD really investing in new software-based solutions, in our case, aiming at fairly sleepy, mundane, and traditional problem sets that change our mindset where we don't think that 75% late is actually acceptable (laughs) or a level of success that'll help us in the future fight. And so how are we going to do that? It's with a combination and many new entrants to the space, competing and driving innovation through the incentives that that exist in this industry. And so that's what we're we're playing for. I I do see signs that it's happening, but it's going to take a number of years to make it so.
0: Well, let's end on that uh, bright future note. (laughs) Logan, it's it's been great having you. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Ken. It's been a pleasure being on the
0: podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review Accelerate Defense on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find the show. And follow the series today wherever you get your podcasts so you get each episode in your feed when they come out. Accelerate Defense is a podcast from Acme General Corp. Our producer is Isabel Robertson. Audio engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. Special thanks to the team at Acme. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Accelerate Defense. Thanks for listening.